good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for uh, being here today. It's a privilege to be able to spend some time in God's Word with you today. Uh, preparation for this particular uh, message has been uh, challenging uh, for me. I want to explain that a little bit. When we uh, set the preaching schedule for the the year, kind of like a rolling 12-month kind of thing, rarely do we uh, attempt to uh, align a particular passage of Scripture that we're going to cover with a particular preacher. And instead, the, the preaching schedule is, is basically uh, based on who's going to be out of town and, or on vacation, or maybe they're uh, preaching at another church. Uh, it's based on who has uh, ministry commitments uh, during a particular week that would make uh, sermon prep challenging for that individual. Uh, sometimes it's based on uh, other conflicts that would make it impossible to preach on, on a given Sunday. And so as, as such, uh, for instance, uh, on the weeks that Pastor Ben is uh, going to be uh, doing like Get Connected Sunday, uh, you know, the weeks leading up to that, we don't schedule Pastor Ben to preach because he's got to be preparing for Get Connected Sunday. Uh, same's true with Mike Bongo. In the weeks leading up to the church festival, we don't put Bongo on the schedule uh, because we want to give him time to be able to do the church festival. He won't have time uh, to be able to preach. Uh, for me, typically in uh, basketball season, when my, my son's women's basketball team has uh, two uh, home games, like on a Thursday, Sunday, a Saturday, or a Friday, Sunday kind of thing, uh, we know where Kathy and I aren't going to be here. We're going to be in Dayton, Ohio, watching uh, women's basketball. So I don't end up on the schedule. So what happens is, uh, based on your schedule, is you get whatever is in next in the order to preach on. So you don't get to pick. And occasionally it works out great because there's a passage of Scripture that you're really uh, passionate about. And, and if you happen to end up on that particular thing and all the stars align and everything's wonderful you get to preach that particular passage of Scripture. Other times, uh, the passage might be dealing with some difficult theological concept. And well, you know, whether you like to teach that thing or not, you're stuck with that bad boy because everything aligned for that. And sometimes, as it is in the case this morning, uh, the passage deals with a, an area of ministry or a time of ministry that was particularly painful and upsetting and is just hard. And uh, if you fall on that week, you fall on that week. And that's where I find myself uh, this morning. Uh, this passage in 2 Timothy uh, takes me back uh, to a very painful time in the life of Living Water Community Church for Kathy and I. It's a, a time where I wondered whether it was all worth it. Uh, where amazing people in whom I had invested and Kathy had invested much energy and love uh, were doing things that I had deemed were a, a clear and present danger to uh, the spiritual health of our church family and where I personally took it upon myself and tried to guide and, and redirect them on, on multiple occasions, which was not... <laughs> was not received very well, and where they ultimately left our church family 
extremely angry and took along with them probably about 50 other wonderful people. And uh, it's a time where if I had it to do over again, I, I would do a lot of things differently, but uh, I didn't. And in the process, I brought a significant amount of hurt uh, into my life, into the life of my wife, uh, into the lives of our elder board, uh, into the lives of, of those folks, in the lives of our church family. Uh, fortunately, uh, God proved himself to be true to his word in Romans 8, and he worked together everything for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. And in those dark days, God used the passage that we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, 14 to 26, uh, to ground me, uh, to bring me some, some clarity to what was actually happening in our church family, uh, to show me what he expected from me as someone who calls themselves a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and who has been given the, the great privilege and the great responsibility to uh, help guide God's people in God's church. And uh, I really, uh, I camped in on that passage for weeks and weeks and weeks um, during this difficult time. So uh, we're going to go through this thing uh, today. I would have much preferred that uh, Bongo or Pastor Ben would have been the one who happened to fall on the schedule this week, but uh, next week we're going to see my uh, grandson Ellis in Ohio, and so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take, uh, take the wound here for, for Ellis. So um, if you have a Bible with you, if you would open it to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, uh, there's Bibles around the room, and if you're able to stand in honor of God's Word, I would humbly ask that you would do that. <clears throat> Second Timothy 2, starting in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handing the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, having nothing to do with foolish 
ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here is the big idea that I'm hoping to uh, get across uh, this morning, and it's this, that, that the local church is extraordinarily precious and must be courageously protected and graciously nurtured. Now, the courageous protection and and the gracious nurturing uh, of God's church is a a common theme throughout the New Testament. And we have seen it over the last several months as we've worked our ways through uh, 1 Timothy and now are working our way through 2 Timothy. And uh, we actually even entitled this series, Caring for God's Church. And, and what I find interesting about what uh, Paul has written to, to Timothy here, who at the, the time of, of Paul writing this letter was pastoring the Christian church in the city of Ephesus, is that these letters, these two letters that, that Paul sent to Timothy, are not the, the first time that Paul had particular concern for the church in Ephesus. If we go into the, the book of Acts, which is the, the history of, of, of the New Testament church, uh, in Acts chapter 20, whose events happened about eight years earlier to when Paul wrote these letters, Paul says the following to the elders who were at that time leading the church in Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend, to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here we are. We're, we're approximately eight years before the Apostle Paul has written these letters to Timothy that we've been studying. And Paul is telling the Ephesian elders... Uh, the, Tim, the church that one day Timothy will actually pastor, that, that there are three groups of people in the church, or in the Ephesian church. The first are fierce wolves who seek to destroy the church. These are people who have either come from, from outside of the church or who have weaseled their way inside of the church, and and they're now trying to to be able to teach and and lead people astray. 
There's a second group that he talks about. There's a group that is in church leadership who are members of the leadership team, perhaps the elder board, that will embrace twisted things that will ultimately draw people away from the gospel. And then there's this third group. There are the faithful within the church who are seeking to glorify God and love others in the midst of all of the chaos that the first two groups are creating. And we see these same three groups of people still within the Ephesian church eight years later in 2 Timothy 2 that we just read. And I've given titles to these groups of people and not trying to be disparaging at all, just trying to be, be forthright. The first is this. You've got these truthless teachers. And they're the fierce wolves of Acts chapter 20, and they're the false teachers of 2 Timothy 2. And then you have this second group, which I've entitled the fault finders. Those are the ones who are tw- teaching the twisted things in Acts chapter 20 and who revel in foolish ignorant controversies that breed quarrels here in 2 Timothy 2. And then finally, there are the godly guardians. And these are the faithful elders in Acts chapter 20 and the workers approved in 2 Timothy 2. And I want to focus on on these three groups this morning. We've already spent a lot of time talking about false teachers, so we, we won't camp in that area for too long. We'll spend a little bit more time Uh, talking about the fault finders, but I want to spend the the bulk of the time talking about how how you and I ought to live, what the the godly guardians should should actually look like. So that's kind of where we're headed uh, this morning. So here we have these uh, truthless teachers, uh, 16 to 18. It says what? Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So, now we've got to ask ourselves here, as we, as we read this thing, uh, Paul is calling out the names of false teachers. That seems to not be a very nice thing to do. Uh, when, when at times we have called out the, the names of false teachers here, we, we've, sometimes we get notes like, hey, that wasn't very nice. You know, you, you shouldn't have necessarily done that. But you've got to ask yourself, why in the world is Paul actually doing this? I mean, here are these two guys, and, and the, their names are they're written down for uh, forever, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, we're reading these guys' names. I certainly don't want Mike Leonzo's name written down somewhere. People 2,000 years from now, like say, oh, he was a bad dude. I can't believe he did that. But here, here we have, why, is he, why does Paul do this? He does this because these people, they are teaching heresy. They're, they're, they're not teaching on theological subjects that, that can be considered debatable or non-essential, matters on which faithful Christians can, can disagree. These guys aren't talking about the specifics 
regarding the end times. You know, what's the timing of the rapture of the millennium? Now, those are disputable topics. People who love Jesus, they can disagree on those and still get along. They're not talking about young earth versus old earth. They're not talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism or the role of women in ministry or the sign gifts. Have they passed away? Are they still valid for today? They're not arguing over Bible translations or, or you know, no alcohol or alcohol in moderation or do I get tattooed or do I not get tattooed? Uh, you know, they're not talking about is my dead hamster going to heaven? These are not the, 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 the issues these guys are talking about. These clowns, Jaime and Phil, they're going around telling people that the resurrection of the dead has already happened. Now, you need to under, this, this, you know, on the surface, it may not seem like it's this big deal. It's a big deal. So, you know, get under, they're, they're not talking, they're not saying that Jesus' resurrection has already happened, because we know that's truth. So, so if they would have been saying, yeah, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, nobody's got any argument with these guys. And, and, and they're not saying that, that the spiritual resurrection has already happened. They're, they're, they're not saying that, you know, when we repent of our sins and receive Jesus in our life, he takes the, uh, our old dead spiritual self and resurrects it and gives us new life. They're not saying that that's already happened, because if they were, we wouldn't have an argument with them. But this is what they're saying. They're saying that the physical resurrection of the dead uh, has already occurred. That, 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 you don't have that. that. That believers are physically resurrected the moment that, that they receive Christ. And, and this is a huge Pharisee because what they're te- or, uh, uh, heresy because what they're teaching. That, that there is no resurrection of the dead when Jesus ultimately comes back. That that has already happened when someone comes to faith in Christ. That is a direct contradiction of Jesus' words. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, that's the dead people, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, the fact that they are teaching that the physical resurrection of believers has already occurred is a huge issue because it goes against what Jesus has taught. But that's just the half of it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's gone right after these teachings, all right? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, 
Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. See, by teaching that, that, that the, the resurrection has, of the dead has already happened when a, believer, when a believer comes to faith in Jesus, they're ultimately teaching what? That Jesus wasn't resurrected. And if Jesus isn't resurrected, everything that Christianity stands for falls like a house of cards. And what is the end result of Jaime and Phil's false teaching? It's right there in 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. We're told that this false teaching is not just going to affect one person. It's going to spread like gangrene. Now, I knew what the term gangrene meant, I didn't know what gangrene looked like. I'm not going to put it on the big screen, so don't worry. For those of you who are not squealing, all right, it's not going. I looked it up like I Googled gangrene. I'm like, whoa, you do not want gangrene. You know, this is where basically uh, tissue dies because of lack of blood supply. The skin turns black, causes it to rot away. I mean, it's just horrible. And if it's not dealt with, it leads ultimately to death. And if this false teaching is not stopped, just like gangrene, it spreads and it destroys and it ultimately upsets the faith of some. Now the Greek word that has been translated upsetting means to ruin or overturn. So sadly what's happening here, people are abandoning their faith in Christ because two men have swerved from the truth and are deceiving people so much so that the faith of others is ruined. So the false teachers who fill our airways at times, they're ruining the faith of others. And so calling them out is not necessarily a bad thing because people's spiritual lives are at stake. Now, you need to understand, not everyone is a false teacher. This is a very, very important thing for us to understand. There are some people who are faithful Christians who love Jesus who love God's word, who love his church, who love others, yet they hold beliefs on non-essentials that are different than yours or mine. There are people out there who genuinely love Jesus, who believe differently about certain things than you and I do. Now, what do we do about them? Well, let me first show you what we don't do by introducing you to the second group of people found here in 2 Timothy 2, the fault finders. Into this group, I would place those who caused some of the challenges at Living Water a number of years ago. You see, fault finders, they're people who deeply love Jesus. And they deeply love God's word. And they love his church and they love others. 
but they get caught up in what Paul talks about here in verse 14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God to do not quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. What happens here is this. That fact finders struggle to discern, and I use that word extremely intentionally right now, between that which is essential and that which is not essential. People who are fault finders, they have trouble discerning between the essential things and the non-essential things. So what are the essential things of the Christian faith? What are the things that, that... if you want to really call yourself a Christian, you got to believe these things with all of your heart. Number one, they're going to be here on the big screen. The Bible is the authoritative word of God. If you don't believe that, you're not going to be able to be a Christian because this is where we learn about everything about Christianity is in God's word. Number one. And, and not only is it the word of God, but it's authoritative. It tells us what we're supposed to do. It's our authority. Number two, there is only one God. There's not lots of of God. Well, there are lots of gods out there, but they're all gods with little g's. They're, They're false gods. There is only one true God. That's Christianity, crazy exclusive. That's just life. You talk to Muslims, yeah, they're they're gonna tell you it's just Allah. Crazy exclusive. You talk to atheists, they're gonna tell you there's no God. Crazy exclusive. Everybody's exclusive. But here we are. There's one God. The one God who's revealed specifically in the Bible and generally in creation. You can look out at creation and you're like, yep, there's a God out there. This stuff didn't happen by accident. All you got to do is look at your hand, play with your hand a little bit, and you're like, wow, did this possibly happen by accident? So he's revealed in creation And he exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Trinity, essential Christian truth. Next one, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is not a created being. He existed with God the Father and God the Spirit from uh, before the beginning of time. He manifests himself in the flesh through the womb of Mary Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man in in his being. He was born of a virgin. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he can't be fully God. If Jesus is not born of a virgin, he can't be fully man. He's born of a virgin. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead got to believe that. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Game over. You're wasting your time. You ought to be playing golf or going to Hershey Park right now. (laughs) Humanity was created in the image of God, fell into sin, and is in desperate need of salvation. If you think humanity is basically good, you're, you're off the reservation. Okay? Humanity does good things, Okay, but deep down inside, there's this evilness in us that given the right circumstances, we're doing horrific things. 
The other night, I, Friday night, I couldn't sleep. I got up at 1 o'clock in the morning. I made the mistake of turning on the television. I watched forensic files. This, this lady caught her husband, uh, you know, confronted her husband about cheating on, that he cheated on her. The husband killed her, put her in a freezer, froze her body, and ran her through a wood chipper. That's evil. You know what's crazy about that? Given the right circumstances, I could do that and you could do that. That's how depraved we are. We might not think we are, but you see people do crazy things. Why? Because deep down inside of us, we're broken people. Without Jesus, we are in desperate trouble. Finally, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. Those are the essentials of the Christian faith. And they have to be embraced by those who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And those in the church who reject those truths and beliefs and attempt to lead others astray away from those things are false teachers. And as such, they need to be firmly dealt with and lovingly confronted regarding their heresy in the hope of bringing them to a right understanding of God's truth. And if they repent or at least refrain from leading others astray, we continue to welcome in the fellowship. And so it's, you know, because we want people in living water communities who, who have yet to come to faith in Christ. I want that. I want this place filled with those folks. Okay, so, but, but if, if they're going around teaching crazy things, now we got an issue. And, and we got a huge issue if we go up and say, hey, you're teaching crazy things, you need to stop doing that. And they're like, no, I like it here, but I want to teach crazy things. Well, we, we are now making you go away. That's what's going to happen. But what about those who wholeheartedly embrace all of those essentials that are on the screen, yet have different perspectives on secondary or non-essential doctrines, which I mentioned earlier? What do you do with them? There was a, a 17th century German theologian named Rupertus Meldinius, and this is what he said. In essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, and all things charity. Unfortunately, fault finders struggle with issues of liberty and charity, and so they quarrel about words which do no good and only ruin the hearers. Jesus dealt with those folks. The leaders of the first century church dealt with those folks too. There were fault finders, people who debated about genealogies and dietary rules of of the Old Testament, what's clean and not clean, issues of circumcision. Some questioned Jesus about eating with sinners. Others questioned Jesus about his disciples picking uh, grains of wheat on, a, on the Sabbath. Others aligned themselves with this particular Christian teacher and looked down on others who followed a different Christian teacher. And in our day, the fault finders... They parse words that are in sermons and videos and blog posts and books looking for the slightest deviation from their carefully crafted orthodoxy. I'm just going to be real straight with you. Not even on the page. There are typically in a sermon 4,500 words. I'm going to blow it sometimes. Bongo's going to blow it sometimes. 
Ben's going to blow it sometimes. Uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to say something stupid, something that you know, perhaps something that's not even accurate out of God's word. That you know, I make a, a mistake. I you know, I say that Jesus had. 13 disciples by accident instead of 12 or something like that. It's not like I don't know that he had 12 disciples. But newsflash, I'm human. I make mistakes. Bongo makes mistakes. Evan makes mistakes. Ben makes mistakes. Bateman makes mistakes. Anybody who comes up here is flawed. I've had people... I, I, I think I said that, I don't know, I think I said that like Peter wrote Revelation one time. Someone called me a reprobate. I'm like, whoa, really? I can't even spell reprobate. It must be bad. But there are fault finders out there that are, that are looking for every little mistake that you make. It's a terrible place to be. I mean, we need to accurately divide God's word. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should go up here and just randomly make mistakes. But, but, but we're going to mess up just like you guys mess up. The trick is if you come to us and you say, hey, you messed up, and you're kind and nice, we're like, yeah, you're right. You know, I need to fix that. Please don't do that in between services. That's really hard. Unless it's like complete heresy. You know, please. There are people out there, there are fault finders who uh, scrutinize who other people are with. You know, like, like just because you hung with this person on this particular day and they're kind of, they got some issue, I don't know what it is, but that, that you know, that, that's a huge problem and you're some heretic for doing it. Like, if Hugh Hefner was still alive, and I went to share the gospel with Hugh Hefner, not, not at the Playboy Mansion, but if I went to share, you know, people would be like, he's hanging out with Hugh Hefner. I'm like, well, Jesus got to you before he got, I got to him. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's crazy stuff. It's like, you know, if you're spending your lifetime with this person who's a terrible person, that's a different story. But, you know, I mean, we... It's crazy. And it's crazy we even have to have these discussions, but we do. I mean, there are churches here in Harrisburg who love Jesus, who believe differently about certain non-essential doctrines. I'm going to hang out with those people. I'm going to try to figure out how to do ministry with those people. I'm not going to just write them off. Because you know what? I may actually be wrong about some of the non-essential stuff. Because I'm not God. We're, we're uh, Pastor Ben, and, 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 and we're a, compliment, a complementarian church. I mean, we only have, have male elders. Okay? There, there's male guys that you see up here. We, we, we hold that position as gently as we can. We're working arm in arm with a group of churches on the West Shore right now, trying to figure out how to do gospel saturation, making sure that every man, woman, and child in central Pennsylvania gets to hear the gospel. It's led by a woman pastor who loves Jesus deeply. She's awesome. 
I, I can, and that, she doesn't have spiritual authority, or I can submit to her in that stuff. It's okay. It's not like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. But there are people who will come along and they're like, that's terrible. I'd say, why? Fault finders make judgments on people's Christian profession based on their political parties and platforms, their ethnicity, their economic status, or their education. Like, you know, this person is of this party. How in the world can they be a Christian if they're in this party? They use phrases like, I wonder if that person's really a Christian. And they do it all under the banner of discernment. Now, don't get me wrong. Having correct doctrine is critical. And Christians certainly need to discern false teaching. However, discernment run wild leads not to doctrinal purity but rather a critical, prideful spirit that divides and hurts Christian brothers and sisters rather than unifies and heals. That's what it does. It divides people. There's an article written in the Gospel Coalition that's entitled, Don't Let Discernment Give Doctrine a Bad Name. It's written by a former missionary to Romania. He's a professor at Cedarville University where my kids went to school, and he says this, This is where what often passes for discernment goes awry. Christians sometimes overreact to a a perceived drift in doctrine. Setting up alarm bells to ring at the slightest possible missteps can turn us into hypercritical and overly alarmist Christians quick to pounce on any possible error. To assume the worst of a brother or sister in Christ or to be ever suspicious that anyone with whom you have doctrinal disagreement must be a wolf in disguise is to fall prey to a self-righteous spirit and a tunnel vision that keeps us from seeing real dangers around us. You see, fault finders think that they are protecting God's church when in reality they themselves may be the very cancer that's seeking to destroy it. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 16, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So there are the two groups of people not to emulate folks, the truthless teachers and the fault finders, but there is a third group, a group that God uses powerfully to grow his church and change the world, and that's the godly guardians. Paul introduces us to this group in verse 15 when he says to Timothy and he says to us this, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the truth. You see, in contrast to the, 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 the truthless teachers or, or the fault finders, you and I are to do our best to be faithful workers in God's kingdom. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be faithful workers in the kingdom of God. We're to strive in such a way that we do not bring shame onto ourselves, and I would add shame onto God's church and into the name of Jesus. And we do this by rightly handling the word of truth. The term rightly handling literally means to to cut straight, like they're they're cutting straight a a path or cutting straight a road. It means that that we don't attempt to, to change, alter, 
manipulate God's word to make it more acceptable to our culture or more comfortable to us, rather than seeking to conform God's word to our wants and desires, instead, crazy thought, we actually change our desires to what God wants. What a radical idea that, that I may not have all the right ideas in the world and that I actually decide that I ought to follow the one who's infinite, who created everything, who knows what in the world is going on. And so many times in my own life, I want to manipulate God to be the way I want him to be instead of the way that God wants me to be. So when God's word says do this, we do it. When God's word says don't do it, we don't do it. I'm not saying it's easy. I struggle with these things. For instance, we read Micah 6, and this is what it says. He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good? And then he lays it out. What does the Lord require of you? Lays out three things. Do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We actually do what God says. We don't just talk about justice. We actually do justice to all people, not just the people that we think we ought to do justice to. We do it to all people. We're told to, to love kindness by doing what? Actually being kind to people. I mean, what a radical idea. It's actually be, be nice. Crazy. Man, I, just, I was driving yesterday. You know, a dude was on his, his cell phone, you know, and checking his cell phone. The light turns green. You know, I, I wasn't behind him. I was coming the other direction. I could see what was going on. A dude just like laid on his horn. Fingers are coming out. I'm like, man. Did your parents not give you oxygen when you were growing up or something? I mean, they deprive you of basic elements? I mean, it's crazy how mean people are nowadays. And we walk humbly with God, considering others better than ourselves. And why do we do this? Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We seek to be workers approved by God because we're God's. He, he, he before the beginning of time, foreordained that we would be his children. And that's the whole, the, the Lord knows whose are his part. God the Son, he... Jesus redeemed us from slavery to sin by his shed blood. He did that for you. God the Spirit, he, he seals our salvation so that even when we blow it, we, we don't lose our salvation. He, he seals it and empowers us to live lives that are acceptable to God, but it's not all on God. There's a second piece to this. This is what, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We have a part to play. It's not all that God doesn't have to do everything. We have a response that happens here. In response to God's love and in response to God's calling, we demonstrate that we love him, what? By departing from iniquity, choosing to obey his commands. And we see this in verses 20 and 21. 
Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul encourages us to depart from iniquity by giving us an illustration of a large house that's filled with with two types of, of dinnerware. There's the special occasion stuff that's there. The, the, the stuff that you break out when, when you know, you're going to have like, you know, important people to your house, like me. <laughs> you know, plates that are made out of china, bowls made out of silver, utensils made out of gold. This is the good stuff that you break out when the company's coming. Then there's the common items. Bowls made out of wood, plates made out of clay, utensils that bend when you're trying to cut the tofu. That was a little shout-out to the vegans who got beat on last week by Bongo. I want to show a little sympathy to them. You know, the common items. It's the butter knife that you use as the makeshift screwdriver, right? It's the, it's the spoon that you use as the tongue depressor on your kid. It's the, the cereal bowl that you, you, know, you, you water the dog fluffy with you know, today, and tomorrow your kid's eating his lucky charms out of it or whatever. <laughs> you know, the idea behind this illustration is what? That, 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 that the house is the visible church. It's, it's living water, for example. And in the house of the church, there are two kinds of people. There, there are those who God uses, there's those who God doesn't. There are good workmen, honorable vessels, who God uses. There's bad workmen, dishonorable vessels, that God doesn't use. What's the difference between the two? The good workmen, the honorable vessels, they, they've purified themselves. They've turned from sin. The bad workmen, the dishonorable vessels, they haven't purified themselves as much or as such, and they're still stuck in their sin. And because good workmen have been purified, God uses them. So how do you purify yourself? What does that actually look like? 22 to 26. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You want to become a vessel used by God? We're told that we are to flee youthful passions. What does Paul mean by that? Well, save any child under 13 in the room, everybody else pretty much knows exactly what youthful passions are. Because we've all been there We know what it's like. We're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, working our way through puberty, adolescence, all that kind of good stuff. You know, what what are these youthful passions? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is is sexual uh, impulses, sexual immorality. You know, when when you're in middle school or high school, bodies change and all kinds of crazy things are going through your mind. It's, It's crazy. 
But, but youthful passions aren't just sexual passions. Speaking in generalities, youth are what? They're impulsive. They don't think much before they act. They can be foolish. They do very unwise things. They engage in ignorant controversies with mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, aunt and uncle. They tend to quarrel with their brothers and sisters. All the things that are mentioned there in verse 23. And unfortunately, when we make this transition from puberty to adulthood, many of of those sinful behaviors, they stay with us. We, We don't ever discard them. These struggles that we had when we were 15, 16, or 17, all of a sudden we've got them when we're like 30 years old. So we've got 15-year-olds that are in 30- and 40-year-old bodies here in living water, in our families, and it's just reality. Some of you ladies, you know this extremely well because some of you have dated, been married to, or are currently married to guys who have that exact problem. You're not a girlfriend or a wife. You're more like a babysitter or a mother. That's a horrible place to be. Horrible. I mean, if you're dating a guy right now that you need the mother, you need to kick the dude to the curb. And you can, I'll give you 30 minutes, all right? Get rid of them. You don't, you don't need a, 25, or a 12-year-old who's in a 25-year-old body. You do not need that. Being alone is better than anything that comes with having someone who's like that. And if you think about this, it's crazy. It's crazy. Of course, perpetual youthful passions aren't always limited to guys, ladies. There are some women probably sitting in this room right now, who for all accounts are a teenager residing in an adult body, just like Jamie Lee Curtis in Freaky Friday. (laughs) And while that makes for a great plot in a comedy movie, that is a crazy sad life to live. It's just a sad life to live. When our lives are filled with youthful passions, they keep us from becoming who God wants us to be. And they contribute to you and I hurting ourselves and the ones we love and people around us. And we don't ever end up pointing people to Jesus when we're like that. And just like any good parent who wants their kid to become a fully functioning adult, God calls us to put off our youthful passion. And he says what? Put on some godly behaviors. He gives us a little list right here. Righteousness. Live a life that that strives to follow God's command. We're not going to get it right all the time. That's just a reality. But try. Do your best. Faith. Trust God even when we don't understand it. We have to trust him. Miss Grace, her living water, had her, the other day, her 30-year-old nephew got killed in, a, in a, some kind of 
industrial accident. What do you do with that? I mean, it takes faith to get through that. It takes faith to believe that, that God is, is over all of that that, 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 that life can continue. It takes faith to do that. I had a friend years ago, his, his kids went to school with my kids. He was working at the, at the steel mill down here, the pipe mill. And, you know, they stack all those huge pipes up in like a pyramid thing, something left loose. They rolled down, they crushed them. What do you do with that? You trust God. You have faith. God, I don't understand this. I don't like this. You are God. I am not. I'm going to trust that you're going to work through this, whatever that looks like. Same thing happens when you get the cancer diagnosis, when your house burns down, whatever. Faith is, is trusting God when you can't see him at work. That's what it is. We're called to love. I mean, you think that would be easy. We're called to love people to treat them the way that we would want to treat others. I got a neighbor right now, guys, I am having a really hard time loving. Really hard time. God's beating the snot out of me. I got to figure it out. And I, I don't know how to do it yet, but I know I need to. Peace. You know, we got to reject all this hatred that's going around. We have to. We've got to do it on an individual basis. It's not going to change. The collective thing is not going to change. It comes down to people being kind and peaceable to other people. And all of that, it comes from us having a pure heart. You see, there is freedom in living a righteous life which overflows with faith in Jesus, love for others, and a heart that seeks peace. And it's so much better and being a slave to youthful passions. And we're called to do more than just simply focus on ourselves, because that, all that I was talking about is all about changing us. We're also supposed to focus on others, especially those who oppose us. And this is hard, especially when fault finders have hurt you along the way. But God doesn't give us a pass because we've been hurt. In verses 24 and 25, and let me just read that. I don't think I, oh yeah, we have it up there on the screen. Good. He says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What's that all about? It's all about those people who oppose you. They're eternal souls. They are eternal souls. And if they die without ever coming to faith in Christ, they live forever separated from the God of the universe. That's what Christianity believes. 
Some forms of Christianity want to play that away, but that's what the text tells us. We need to understand that. We need to understand all those people who we don't like, who cause us issues, they are eternal souls. Who, who, do, do we literally want them to go to hell? So God calls us to do the things that are necessary to give them an opportunity to see what Jesus looks like. Because the only way that we know what Jesus looks like is in here, right? It's the only way that we know what he looks like. What happens, though, is when you and I start behaving like what's in here, other people at least get to see a glimpse of Jesus, however flawed it all we might be. All right, I, I've went, way, wow, 16 minutes over. That's great. <laughs> I should get a bonus for that or something like that. So no, no fancy uh, illustration. Let me, let me just pray for us. Lord God, thank you for these folks. Uh, thank you for them putting up uh, with me this morning. And uh, God, I pray that you would help us. Help us, Heavenly Father, not to be truthless teachers, not to be false finders, fault finders, but Lord, help us to be uh, godly guardians. Help us, Heavenly Father, to uh, protect your church. Help us, Heavenly Father, to love your people. And help us, Heavenly Father, to love those who come against us. Forgive us for our sins, which are many, but your son's blood is so infinite. Thank you that it covers all of our sin. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this ministry that you've entrusted to us. This is not Mike's church. This is our church, which is ultimately your church. God, help us to tend it well. And Lord, now thank you for this offering that we're about to take. Thank you for those who uh, give uh, online, who give through the mail, who are going to give here in person today, who do the Venmo thing. Dear God, thank you for these gifts that come in. I pray that we would be wise stewards of it. And uh, Lord, pray for those who, who struggle to give right now. Dear God, I pray that you would help them to, uh, Lord, to be, uh, they want to be generous. Help them to be generous. Heavenly Father, sometimes we find ourselves in such difficult circumstances. But Lord, help them to know the joy of uh, giving to your work. And it's through your son's name we pray.